Well, I invite you to turn to our scripture passage uh, today, and uh, it's Colossians 1, 3 to 8. Colossians 1, 3 to 8. And starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us as we just sung. We pray, Lord, that my uh, meager words would be used by your Spirit and be your words of life in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. We pray that you would do what I cannot do and use these words to build us up and make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. Fill us, Father, with your presence and your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, These days, probably one of the most important things in our life is a charging cable. These are incredibly important, but also incredibly frustrating when they don't work. Uh, When you traveled, it used to be that the thing that you would stress most about is forgetting your plane tickets at home when you got to the airport. Nowadays, we stress about forgetting our phone charger before we head on a trip. Or maybe any of you ever have the low battery warning pop up on your phone at 8 a.m. and you're like, what in the world? This phone wasn't charging the entire night and you're not sure how you're going to make it through the day. And as a result of this, if your phone isn't charging like it's supposed to, it, it leads to something like a Mr. Potato Head problem, where you're mixing and matching all kinds of different cables and chargers to try to figure out, all right, is it the charger that's broken, or the cable that doesn't work, or maybe the port on my phone that isn't work? And what you're trying to do is get that buzz, or that little ding, or that little lightning icon on your phone. It doesn't matter if there's electricity in the outlet, or in the charger, or in the cable that runs out from it. What you care about is that buzz. Is electricity making it into the phone's batteries? That's the whole point of it. Imagine if you were on tech support uh, call trying to diagnose the issue, and they said, well, I I know that the phone isn't charging, but I mean, electricity is getting to the end of the USB cable. Like, isn't that good enough for you? And it's ridiculous, right? And I think in the same way, though, we settle for kind of this good enough Christianity that isn't actually charging our batteries. Too many people settle for what is like an intellectual knowledge of God, where maybe you know a lot of doctrine or Bible verses, or maybe you have a, a vague sense, oh, I know God is out there, or he, I think he exists, or you think, oh yeah, Jesus was a good person. But what good is a Christianity that only exists in that realm and isn't actually charging your batteries, charging your heart? I mean, what good would it be to be collecting a hundred USB chargers if you never 
plug them in to charge something. And that is what we see in our passage today, that Paul shows us how true Christianity results in a changed life. We're in the second week on the series through the book of Colossians called Jesus is Enough, because that is the whole point of this book. And what I want you to see is that God gives us heavenly hope for earthly good. God gives us heavenly hope for earthly good. And we're going to look at that three ways. Earthly good, heavenly hope, and then one plan. So first, earthly good. Our, our passage, the way it's laid out, is maybe a little different than we're used to, where Paul gives us the, the, what is essentially the charging icon, the evidence that God's grace is in working in your life. And from there, he traces back through the cable to the source of that grace. And so, let's begin with what are these evidences? What is the earthly good that God, God's grace brings us? And this is very practical stuff. And if you're a Christian, just as if when you look at your phone, you look for those indicators, is the battery charging? We also should look in our own lives for these indicators that God's grace is filling us up. And in our passage, we have three indicators we can look for. Thanksgiving and faith, and love. So Paul begins by letting the Colossians know that whenever I pray for you, I pray for you with thanksgiving. Now, this is striking because if you remember last week, we looked at one of the reasons why Paul is writing this letter is because he's worried that the Colossians are beginning to add some other things to that simple gospel message. And in the end, it would take them away from Jesus. And yet Paul's prayers are not focused on what they're doing wrong. They're not focused on all the ways that he's worried for them, but they are focused on thanksgiving for the way that he sees God at work in their life. And when you look at Paul's other letters in the New Testament, you see this very common theme of thanksgiving. So just take two, Ephesians 1, 15 to 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Or Philemon 4 to 5, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. If you read through Paul's letters, you get the sense that he is someone who is genuinely delighting in his fellow believers. He loves to see how God is at work in their life. And one of the indicators that God is at work in your life is that there is joy and thanksgiving for other Christians. You find yourself filling your prayers with thanksgiving for how you see God at work in other people's lives. So you can ask yourself this diagnostic question. How many of your prayers are filled with thanksgiving for what you see God doing in other people's lives? In the the beauty of God's grace is it le leads to this abundance mindset that you're so thankful for what God is doing in other people's lives, how you see them, him blessing them. I think what maybe keeps us from giving thanks for other believers is that deep down, we, we have a mindset of scarcity, right? That, that we are so good at, I know I am, always comparing myself to others, having a jealousy for what maybe someone else has that I don't have and I really want it. And the grace of God dissolves that comparison. 
it dissolves that jealousy and blossoms into thanksgiving for other people. Because it's hard to be thankful if you believe God is kind of like a Scrooge, which I think so many of us naturally do. We think, oh, God plays favorites with certain people, or he reluctantly gives out his blessings, or if he gave it to that person, we kind of instinctively think, well, then that means there's less for me. We wouldn't put it this way, but we have a mindset of scarcity when it comes to God. That, that good in someone else's life, well, it probably means less good for me because they got first dibs. And we can tell that God's grace is at work in charging our batteries when we see more and more thanksgiving in our prayers, and in particular, for other people and the good things in their life. And why does Paul overflow with thanksgiving? Well, verse 4 tells us, Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Now think about this for a moment. We're, we're starting with the, the indicators that the battery is charging. And one of the indicators that Paul gives us is, of indicators of God's grace, is the presence of faith in your life. Now, that seems to be kind of backwards from how we normally think about it, right? We think, I have faith, and that gets me God's grace. But remember, Paul, the flow of his argument is working backward from the indicators to the source. And so Paul here is saying that faith is actually an indicator of God's grace in your life. It shows that the power of God has plugged into your life when you have faith in him. Now, it's often helpful to think of faith as kind of like a pipe or a cable that connects you to something. But it would be a mistake to think of faith as this cable that you kind of pull out from yourself and try to reach up and plug into God. It's actually the opposite of that. Faith is this cable that comes down from God in heaven and plugs into your life. So that if you have faith, it's actually an indicator that God's grace has plugged into your heart. It's that little charging icon that pops up. It should be encouraging to you if you see evidence of faith for God in your life. It means that that faith is not a result of your effort, but a result of a God who is holding you fast. And so that really changes how we think of faith. It means that true Christian faith is not this shaky thing that, well, I better not ask too many hard questions about it or it'll come collapsing down. Or I better not you know, protect it from all the ways of this world or else I might lose it. No, Christian faith is the strongest thing there is because it comes from heaven and is given to you by God. It wasn't your work or intellectual capacity or whatever that brought faith into your life. It is God who cho chooses to give himself to you, and that lights up faith in your life. And the third evidence of grace in our life is, of that earthly good, is love for all of God's people. Do you mark your Christian growth in the love that you have for others? I mean, given how much Paul mentions this in all of his letters, maybe this is one of the best markers of Christian maturity that we have, growing in love for other Christians. Now, that's probably not the marker we think of, right? So many of us think, well, maybe it's knowing a lot about the Bible or knowing a lot of theology or, or you know, doing this thing. Maybe one of the best markers of a mature Christian faith 
is the love you have for God's people. And this ties into that first indicator, thanksgiving, right? What a great evidence of love for others is that you are rejoicing with them in what you see in their life. This brings us then to our second point, a heavenly hope. So maybe you hear about these indicators and you think, well, I don't know. I'm not seeing them in my life. Or maybe they're very weak, right? Like when you use that really old charging connector and it takes, you know, a half a day to charge your iPhone. How can I, you know, get a faster charge with this? How do I grow in this? And that's what this heavenly hope is. And the NIV is particularly helpful in verse 5 when it says the faith and the love. So those two charging indicators we just looked at, what do those come from? Well, it tells us they spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. So how do you get more faith and more love in your life? It's by being connected to that hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Okay, well, what is that hope that's stored up for us? Paul continues in verse 5, about which you have already heard the true message of the gospel. So Paul expands, then what well, the question is, what does that true gospel mean? If you go down to the second half of verse 6, he gives us a better idea. He says, just as it has been doing since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So God's grace is part of this gospel that they are understanding. The gospel takes root in your life when you hear it and then begin to understand how big God's grace is. But what then, if we get more specific, is that hope that Paul refers to? What is that hope that is stored up for you in heaven? That results that when you're plugged into that, faith and love light up in your life. Well, if we jump down to verse 27, listen to what Paul writes. To them God has chosen to make known to the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the hope that is stored up for us in heaven? What is this hope that we've heard about in the gospel? Well, it's centered around Jesus, who resides in heaven. He is that deposit of hope that when we are connected to him, faith and love light up in our life. And so let me bring a couple of things together that I've been talking about. And, and, and follow me, because this is crucial for understanding the rest of the book of Colossians. It's the central theme throughout. A good way to get at it is with Eugene Peterson's translation of verse 27. He says, God wanted everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. The mystery in a nutshell is just this. Christ is in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. So this means that, first off, when Paul talks about heaven and that heavenly hope, he's not talking about something that's way off in the horizon that maybe one day you'll get after you die and then go up to heaven, which is kind of how we often think of heaven, right? We, we think of heaven as someplace future that when you die, you'll go there up in the clouds with little cherubs with tiny wings, you know, fluttering around. And St. Peter is kind of like, you know, the bouncer deciding who gets to go in and who gets to go out. But Paul says, no, your faith and love spring from a hope in heaven, which means that hope is a present and accessible reality. 
Because if it wasn't present and accessible, you couldn't have faith and love that spring from it. Which means that, well, go back. So then when we look at verse 27, which tells us Christ is that hope, and then it tells us, and guess what? Christ is in you. So if we bring all these things together, that it means that that hope of heaven, which produces this fruit in your life, is not something that is far away in heaven. It's not something that you hope to maybe get to at some point in the Christian life. It is something that is in and alive and working in you the moment you have faith in Christ, the moment you become a Christian. That the hope of heaven takes root in your life when Jesus takes hold of you. That heaven is actually growing inside of you right this moment. Remember last week how we said Paul addressed the Colossians as those in Colossae and in Christ. And he said it is, we so often feel torn between the two, right? I, I, I feel the stress of work and that sucks me in and I have a good Sunday and that lifts me up, but then Monday I go back to the stress of work. And how do we integrate that fullness of the joy of Christ into our life? And what Paul shows us is that the answer is in Jesus who took, who was the flesh, made of the flesh of this world, and yet a person of heaven, God himself, joined into a single person, and then he puts himself inside of you. Very God, a very God. And the Christian life, then, is allowing that reality of heaven to control more and more of the reality of your life. I mean, imagine how much your life would change if Christ was the controlling reality of your life. That, that he was the impulse, that he was what you reacted to when under stress. He was what came out when you were squeezed. How would it change how you react to stress, to disappointments in life, to suffering and to pain, if what is charging your batteries is Christ himself? Do you realize that God's plan for you is to have that heavenly power of Christ so become part of your day-to-day -day life that you, from your head to your toes, share in his glory. See, sometimes we, we can think of being a Christian or salvation as just, well, yeah, I know I sin, but thankfully God forgives me every time, and then I sin, and then God forgives me, right? And that, that's true, but that shrinks salvation from what God has intended it to be. It can even kind of devolve into this, you know, like you treat God like you would your rich dad who bails you out every time you need help. You need some help. Sorry, dad, I need some more money, right? Ran into this situation or can you send me some more? And he gives you some money and then a week later, you're, you know, you need him for something else. And so you ask for uh, some more money. And central to the gospel message is that God forgives our sins, but salvation is so much more than just that. It's this, that Jesus who Paul describes later on in chapter 1, is the one who existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. 
That's who Jesus is. God in all his fullness has packaged himself in the person of Jesus. And guess what? That Christ who is supreme and holds everything and all creation together is now inside you. So that when God is glorified, you bask in the rays of that glory because God has taken home in your heart. It's why becoming a Christian is so much more than just this decision to follow Jesus, again, that's part of it, but it is ultimately a death to your old life, a death to those old ways, and a new birth into life in God right now. A life where the power of Christ is what is charging your batteries, and that heavenly reality that is charging you will result in rays of goodness and glory throughout your life. And so doesn't that shed light on why Paul is so thankful for these Christians? Because these little things that we maybe just look over in other people, he looks at the good they do. He looks at the love they have for people. And he realizes that love is an indicator that heaven is breaking out in the Colossians' hearts. That when you show love for other Christians, those are rays of heaven shining into this dark world. And it's glorious. This theme is dripping from Colossians. Just a couple of verses, Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to that fullness. Paul's saying this is something that is yours right now. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, a present reality. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What is the controlling reality of your life? What is charging your batteries? And you know what it is by how you react. What are those indicators in your life? Is it stress, anger, hate, unforgiveness? Or is it love and thanksgiving? Another way to think about it is what is your hope? What is that thing that you are longing for? That picture of your life that you're trying to work towards and that thing that you prize so much that you get unduly angry if it starts to get threatened. That's what your hope is. That's what you're living for. And one of the reasons we have so much stress and anger and tension in our lives is because what we're living for, what we are resting our hopes on, are things that are as steady as a pool noodle. <laughs> you ever try to sit on one of those in the pool, right? And every time some other kid jumps in the, in the pool, it brings some waves and, and then almost knocks you over and you're just fluttering around trying to, to keep from flipping over into the water. And isn't that a picture of what our lives look like so much? Because we are trying to rest the bulk of our heart and on our soul on pool noodles not the unchanging power and love of God. Are you living for things right now in the sacrifices that you're making and where you're giving your time and what your attention's drawn to? Are you living for things that in the end will only become dust and ashes? But why would you rest the weight of your soul on something that will turn to dust? I want this house or this spouse or this money or this job or this health. Your hope is the controlling reality in your life. 
And it is what you will judge your day-to-day -day circumstances by. It is what, if this thing happens, makes your day, or if it doesn't happen, it breaks your day. And if you're a Christian, we have the ability to rest our hope on the one who, quote, existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Why would you not rest your hope on that? Why would you not give yourself to the one who has existed in eternity past and will exist in eternity future? And that takes us to the third point, one plan. So in verse 6, Paul jumps from talking about how the gospel is bearing fruit amongst the Colossians to how it's bearing fruit around that, the known world at that time. And this language that he uses there in verse 6 should remind us of another Bible passage, Genesis 1.28, where God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And it seems, even in some of the specific language that Paul uses here in verse 6, that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, that he is, he is echoing that language of Genesis 1.28, of that command that God gave Adam and Eve right when he created the world. And he's saying that command from way back then is beginning to see its fulfillment here today amongst the Colossian churches and all these other churches in the Mediterranean. It's a plan that started with Adam and Eve, took a bunch of detours, looked like it wasn't going to happen, was carried forward with Christ, was started to be fulfilled in the Colossian church, and is now even being fulfilled today as people around the world from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language come to know the God who made them. And this has several applications for us. Do you, as a Christian, realize that you are part of God's cosmic plan set in motion from the beginning of creation? You get to participate in a mission that was the very first mission in this world and the one that will continue to the end of this world. That your life will have echoes of eternity as you give yourself to God's work. That mission of spreading and cultivating and giving thanks for the fruit of the gospel that goes into the world. If you have kids, do you know that cultivating in them a true faith is one of the most significant things you can do in your life? Because that will last far longer than anything else you can give them or teach them. Do you realize that when you invest in other people's lives, right, when you invest in the lives of others in this church and care for them and bear their burdens and help point them to Christ, you are doing something that will bear an eternal fruit in their life. When you invite others, we live in a place where so many have never heard of the grace, the true grace of God. And there is such potential here to help other people taste that grace and change the course of their life for all eternity. We are part, God has given his church the greatest mission out there, a mission to see a bloom of beauty throughout the world. Another application, this means you can have hope in your life no matter how dark it gets, whether in our world or in the life of someone you love or in your own life. That that plan from Genesis 1, which is still being accomplished now, is a plan that, got, that God started 
before sin came into the world. And think about that for a second. Right? The plan that God started before sin came into the world is still being accomplished now. Because how many times does sin screw up your plans? Right? How many times does it feel like death gets the last word in your life? Or the choices of someone that you love cut you off from them and you don't know if you'll see them again? How many times does it feel like you're living in a darkness without any hint of dawn? But think about all the things that have happened since God outlined that first plan back in Genesis 1. You are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then not too long after that, Adam and Eve screw it all up. They fall into sin. Their, their firstborn uh, sons get into a fight and Cain murders his brother Abel. Humanity gets so wicked that the Bible tells us every thought of man was evil all the time and God has to wipe it all out with a flood. God's people then reject the God who saved them. That land that God promised them, that it gets invaded by outsiders and God's people are carted away as slaves. Jesus comes into the world and is murdered by the very people he came to save. And yet Paul doesn't say, good thing God had a plan B. Good thing God mitigated his risk because you know how unreliable people are. No, Paul says, God's plan from the beginning has not been canceled because of sin. It has not been altered because of failure. But it is bringing about a bloom in people's lives that we see right now. God's plans cannot be thwarted. As one old hymn puts it, deep in unsearchable minds of ever-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And that sovereign will was revealed in Christ, who is holding everything together with a love that will not let you go. So do you have that kind of hope? That no matter how dark it gets, dawn will come. No matter how much it hurts and how much you've cried, it will not have the last word. But Christ will accomplish his work. Any of you notice just how many black-eyed Susans were in bloom last summer? It, it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it out here. And uh, late summer, these you know, tall plants uh, just bloom in this gorgeous yellow. And I, I ride my bike along the trail on Mountain View Corridor a lot. And, and it was incredible because there were certain parts on that trail where it felt like I was biking through just a tunnel of gold as I was surrounded by these flowers. And these four to five foot plants with hundreds of golden flowers, as I cruised through them, it felt like I was you know, flying through a star field of brilliance. And I couldn't help but have my heart give thanks for that explosion of beauty. And what Paul is saying here is that God is creating a super bloom of people whose beauty will shine forth through the heavens and be more magnificent than all the galaxies. That you, along with all the believers that have come before us and all the believers from every tribe and tongue and nation are being gathered together to be part of this super bloom of God's glory in the galaxy. And that's what we get to be a part of. And that is what God is doing. And Paul looks around at these little struggling churches and he doesn't see all the things they lack. He sees some of those first blooms of God's grace and he rejoices because he knows God is working here and he's still working today 
among us and throughout the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to rest our hope on you, to fully immerse ourselves into the life of God so that we would blossom with that thanksgiving and love and joy and faith. Father, we need this. We cannot do this on our own. So speak to us, O God. Change us. Fill our batteries with the power of Christ because we're so depleted. And we ask you to do this in Christ's name. Amen.